This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Middle of letter number 18, Chai, page 316. And this is a continuation of the previous letter with Al-Tarebbe encourages the act of tzedakah and the power, powerful effect of the mitzvah of tzedakah that which leads to the dividend of the mitzvah of tzedakah is the reward that the soul receives in the afterlife in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden. But the principal reward of the mitzvah of tzedakah is saved up for the world to come, which is the world of resurrection, when there'll be this revelation of Hashem's infinite self, intimate self. Where does this come from? This is all a result of the mitzvah of tzedakah. And in general, mitzvah in general. So from the reward, you can know what the essence of the mitzvah is. Since it's the mitzvah that generates these powerful rewards. So from the reward, I can know what the mitzvah is. What is the essence of a mitzvah? What is the point of a mitzvah? What is the essence of a mitzvah? The essence of the mitzvah is the fact that we're touching the divine. That we're touching the essence of Hashem. Which is greater than all the rewards. That's why it says in Ethics of Our Fathers, Yaakov says one moment of tshuva and good deeds in this world is worth more than all of the world to come put together. Meaning including the Garden of Eden, the afterlife, including even the resurrection. Which is the reward, the ultimate reward. Principal reward. But the mitzvah itself, while you're doing the mitzvah in the here and now, it's superior and it far surpasses and exceeds any reward. Because when you're doing the mitzvah essentially... You're touching the divine. What more do you need? There's nothing greater. The reward is a reflection. Reflection of the essence of the mitzvah. Since the essence of the mitzvah is that we're touching with the divine, we're connecting with the divine, that's reflected in the reward. That the soul in the Garden of Eden and the afterlife experiences as a glimmer of a ray and the pleasure and the understanding and perception of godliness. And it grows and goes from strength to strength on a daily basis and multiple times throughout the day. It goes from strength to strength and advances in its understanding and comprehension. Like Moshe Rabbeinu, who was in the Garden of Eden for 3,000, close to, th- close to th- 3,300 years. And every day is advancing and growing in his perception, his experiencing, and his understanding and perceiving of godliness with a new delight, a new ecstasy, a new revelation, a new discovery, a new insight. That's one reward. 
which isn't only the dividend, which is insignificant in comparison to the ultimate reward, which is resurrection, and the soul will return to the body, and then the soul will experience, the person will experience the divine Hashem's infinite light. But even that's just a reward. That's a reflection of the mitzvah. What causes, what generates this intense reward? It's the mitzvah, it's the deed, it's the action. And therefore, we see a reflection of that even in the here and now. Since the whole essence of the mitzvah is that we're touching the divine, we're connecting with the divine. So some of it is reflected in, in the soul, that the soul experiences something godly and something divine. Because the problem is, we're doing the mitzvah. And the reward is nothing in comparison to the mitzvah itself, which is the cause that generates all this intense reward. But we do the mitzvah and we don't feel anything. We're clueless. Many Jews do mitzvahs and they feel like it's a burden. It's an obligation. They do it begrudgingly, half-heartedly. One, tied, one hand tied behind their back, half asleep. Or have to be kicked and dragged to do the mitzvah. Don't sense anything. Don't realize how precious each mitzvah is. Don't feel, don't sense. Blind, deaf, and dumb to what's going on. But as a reflection of this, we receive some of this reward, we receive in the... The soul does experience. When the soul gets the sense, something godly, something awakens within the soul. You do a mitzvah, and something awakens within the soul. Some godly stirrings awaken within the soul. So this is a reflection of the mitzvah, a reflection of the divinity of the mitzvah. And we see that in the two types of experiences that the soul experiences. Just like there's two types of reward, there is the dividends, the fruits, which is the reward of Ganeden, the Garden of Eden, and then there's the principle, which is the reward of the world to come. And the world, the reward of the world to come, of the resurrection, is a pure act of tzedakah, it's a gratuitous act, because there's nothing that we can do to be worthy, to experience this level of divinity, God's intimate self, God's infinite self, beyond our capacity. We can be in the Garden of Eden for thousands of years and advance and higher levels of consciousness and sophisticated and even in a more sophisticated level and be gone forever. And yet we'll never be able to receive God's infinite light, God's infinite intimate self. So it's a gratuitous act of kindness that Hashem allows us and gives us this reward and allows us to experience, will allow us to experience the, the divine. So too you have, there are those souls who are given a gift. It's not something you can earn on your own. But those who are righteous will receive a gift. They'll experience a love of pleasure. A love of being intimate with Hashem. 
a love which comes from the deepest depth of their soul, a subconscious, something you can't earn, you can't acquire, you can't force, you can't manipulate, you can't control, you can't summon. It's a gift that comes directly from Hashem to a person who is perfect, a person that's a righteous person, was surpassed. His capacity in Hashem will give him a gift he'll experience this all-encompassing pleasure. And he'll experience an intimacy with Hashem that's indescribable. That's an end in itself. But this is a reward for the mitzvah, a reflection of the mitzvah, a reflection of what the mitzvah is. Because the truth is, the mitzvah is a pure gift of Hashem. That's why the giving of the Torah is called Matan Torah. It's a gift. It's not something that's humanly accomplishable. The fact that when we do a mitzvah, we touch the divine, when we study Torah, we're becoming intimate with the divine. You can meditate for a thousand years. You can pray and meditate and experience high levels of consciousness. And no matter how sublime you are, no matter how, how expansive and how... You'll never ever be able to achieve this intimacy to connect with Hashem. It's a pure, gratuitous act of kindness on Hashem's part that He has chosen and given us the opportunity by physically doing the mitzvah. And that's why it's only the physical mitzvah that will lead, especially tzedakah, that will lead to the reward of the resurrection, which will also be physical, because it comes about through the physical mitzvah, and therefore every Jew who has a connection to mitzvah will, which is every Jew, will have a share in the world to come. So the whole divinity of the mitzvah, the whole div- underlying divinity of the mitzvah is a pure, gratuitous kindness of Hashem, only because Hashem has chosen. Not because of anything that we're doing. Not because of our spirituality and our... It's because Hashem has chosen. And therefore Hashem's choice is expressed in the physical mitzvah. When you physically put on the tefillin, you physically light the candle, you physically give the tzedakah, you're touching the divine. And that underlying essential divinity is expressed in the reward that those righteous people experience in the here and now, in this world. This ava betainugim, this all-encompassing love sub- that sublimates their whole being and suffuses and permeates their whole being. It becomes who they are. Like life, it becomes a life itself. It's who they are. Your pleasure is who you are. Their whole core, their whole essence becomes godly. They become intimate and one with God. And that becomes an end in itself. That's the greatest reward, imagine. And he starts out with this because the truth is that any Jew who is sincere and does the mitzvot suffused with a love for Hashem, with a lower level of love that we're about to learn now, that, that it is within our capacity to develop and to nurture. And we do the mitzvah with a sense of godliness, a sense of holiness. And we suffuse the mitzvah with that vitality, that spirituality, that love, that yearning for godliness. So we can merit, maybe we'll merit, at least we'll get a taste of the higher level of love. Hashem will give us this gift, this gratuitous gift and kindness. 
rub off on us. Something of the mitzvah, something of the essential nature of the mitzvah, the divine nature of the mitzvah will rub off, that we'll experience a pure love of ecstasy, a pure love of pleasure. It's indescribable, it's not humanly attainable, it's completely a, a divine gift, a kiss of Hashem, a kiss of Hashem. But this is all just to help us understand how important the mitzvah is. This whole point is to encourage the action. It's all about the action. This is a continuation of the previous letter. From the reward, I know what the mitzvah is. If the mitzvah can generate such a powerful reward, a love of pleasure, if it's the mitzvah of tzedakah, all the mitzvahs in general, specifically the mitzvah of tzedakah, the act, the deed, the actual giving of tzedakah, can generate not only the world to come, the revelation of the world to come, which will only be in this world and this body, which will come as a result of the physical doing the mitzvah of tzedakah. But it could also generate that we can even get a reflection of it. Those righteous, those pure ones get a gift and get a reflection, a taste of it. And he says when a person works hard on the one thing that it is within our control, and that is yira, awe of Hashem, fear of Hashem, Self-nullification, egolessness, which is completely in our control. Sacrifice. And when we try to the best of our abilities, we search for that treasure. Like we learned last week, we search for that treasure and we dig and we work hard. And we... When Hashem sees that we're trying with all our might, that's the nature. That the male, the masculine energy chases after the, the feminine energy. When the feminine energy is open, and she has the power to seduce the masculine energy. So when we work and try our hardest, we have the power of seduction. We're in the receiving end, but the receiver has the power of seduction to, reduce, to seduce that masculine energy, to seduce that gift, that response from Hashem. It's a gift. It's only a response from Hashem. But we can make ourselves open to it. We can create that space. We can remove our egos and get out of the way and make a conducive environment seduce that response. That response comes on its own. We don't control it. Something stirs on its own. It's just from the deepest depth, it just emerges. We can't control it. We can't. It's something undefined. It's, something, it's a taste of the infinite and something undefined. It's located at the very core and essence of our being. It's totally beyond our conscious control. But when we consciously and deliberately create a space and make an environment that's conducive to godliness, we get out of our way, we get out of our egos, bittle. We reach a level of bittle, of self-nullification, of egolessness, we'll seduce a response, something will stir. So in a way, we have nothing to do with it. It's really a response that comes some, almost on its own, but we could create the environment that's conducive, that's likely to invoke such a response. Like the woman has the power to seduce the man. So the fact that it's the mitzvah, doing the mitzvah, and it's the essential divine nature of the mitzvah, that could help us achieve a taste of the divine 
This tells us something about the mitzvah. This tells us about the power of the mitzvah. So this gives us a renewed energy, vitality, a renewed excitement in the deed, in getting the mitzvah done and doing the mitzvah. We appreciate the essential divinity of the mitzvah. It's not just a ritual. It's not just a custom. It's not just superficial, external, mechanical. <laughs> it's so powerful. It's so profound. It's touching the divine. This inspires us to want to do the mitzvah and do it wholeheartedly and do it with all our heart, to do it with every fiber of our being and every bone in our body and sincerely. And Hashem looks in our heart. When we do the mitzvah sincerely and wholeheartedly, that's likely to produce and evoke a response and we may get a taste. We may get the taste of this pleasure, of this love of pleasure, love of the light, which is a pure, gratuitous gift of Hashem, a pure act of tzedakah from Hashem. We can't summon it, we can't control it, we can't force it. It has a life of its own. It's infinite, it's undefined. So this, this helps us understand. Al-Tareb is very cryptic, as always. He's very obvious, but it's very cryptic. Like you can read this and you completely miss the whole point. Like so many people read much of the Tanya and just they don't get the depth of what the Rebbe is saying. What the Rebbe says, you have to realize that this letter is a continuation of the previous letter. This letter wasn't, these letters weren't written in sequence. The sons of the Alter Rebbe, the author, put different letters in different times, different places. They put it in a certain order. Because one theme, these letters are thematic. One letter, one theme leads to the next theme and to the next step. There's a conscious, deliberate decision how to organize these letters. It wasn't just random. Okay, let's, we have some space here. Let's put a letter. It fits over here. This is thematically connected. So this letter is a direct continuation of the previous letter. And it tells us about the speaks to the power of the mitzvah, the power of the deed. Because all of this is just a throw-off. It's just the reward of the mitzvah itself, the deed. So how can you compare the reward to the action? If the action could generate such a powerful response, the mitzvah could, could lead to the Garden of Eden with all its infinite delights and ecstasy. It's indescribable. Even the basic level of the Garden of Eden, the first moment that the soul experiences after, in the afterlife, is beyond description. Imagine the con- constant, continuous advancements of the soul. It's indescribable, the pleasures and the delights that the soul uncovers goes from level to level, from depth to depth. As we see in the Torah that we have, 3,300 years after the giving of the Torah, and you see the depth of the Torah has been revealed. This is a reflection of what they're experiencing in heaven. In the Garden of Eden, they're also studying Torah, they're advancing. Their understanding of the Torah is advanced. And it's being revealed to us through the the, the Rebbe's and the, the great leaders of the Jewish people, they're like, as the previous Rebbe said, what is a Rebbe? You know, tonight is Rosh Chodesh Tammuz. It's the month of Gimel Tammuz when the previous Rebbe was sentenced, was commuted to exile. The day the Rebbe, 21 years ago, the 21st yard site, Yud Beis Gimel Tammuz, the previous Rebbe was born and then he was completely released from prison. His birthday, Previous Rebbe said, what is a Rebbe? He says, a Rebbe 
is a soul who hears Torah in the Garden of Eden and he shares it with us. He tells us what's going on up there. So you think all these advances in understanding of the Torah, all these breakthroughs, it's because in heaven, they're, they're, after thousands of years of advancing, they're studying Torah in a whole different dimension, a whole different depth. We can't even imagine how illuminated Moshe, if Moshe was illuminated from day one, you can imagine what level Moshe is at today. Imagine what level, I mean, they're not resting over there, they're not sleeping, they're continuing, they're advancing. It appears that this world is regressing, but the truth is in reality they're advancing and growing by leaps and bounds and in their depth and their understanding and their comprehension and their perception. Their experience. And the leaders of the Jewish people are sharing with us, giving us a taste of some of that advancement. So all this depth that we're studying in the Torah that we're, we never learned before, we never heard before, we never knew before, it's because in heaven they're advancing. They're, they're, they're going deeper and deeper and and all of that is just the result of the mitzvah of tzedakah. The mitzvah in general, specifically the mitzvah of tzedakah. And the ultimate advance, and the ultimate breakthrough, and the ultimate achievement, the ultimate reward, the principal reward will be the resurrection. When the soul will come back into this world to experience the ultimate, God's infinite self, God's intimate self. It's completely infinite and undefined. And we'll be able to experience it in this world. And this all comes as a result, a reward, the principal reward for the mitzvah, for the deed. So which is greater? If a mitzvah could generate such powerful response, just because I gave, I took, I wrote a check, because I took a dollar bill and I gave it to a poor person, and this is the result of that deed, of that action? I put on the tefillin, and this is the result of the deed of that simple act? 613 opportunities that Hashem gave us to touch the divine and it generates such a powerful response. And you don't have to wait for the future. That's what he's saying in this letter. We get a taste of it in the here and now. Our soul, spiritually, we can sense. Instead of doing the mitzvah, like we're blind, deaf and dumb, like we're spiritually dead, unconscious or comatose, we don't feel, we don't sense. Unfortunately, many feel it's like a burden and it's a pain and it's a, it's a yoke. And it's... Instead, we get a sense of the divine. That the mitzvah that we do, the Jewish lifestyle, the mitzvah that we do, arouses a sense in our soul, a feeling for Hashem, a sense of godliness, a consciousness, a, an awakening. Awakening. In our soul, some consciousness of godliness, holiness. So first he explained the advanced level, the highest level, which is a reflection of the principal reward in the world to come and the resurrection. And now he's going to explain the lower level, the lesser level, which is something that we could accomplish and something that we could achieve. And it's up to us. And when we do the best that we can, the maximum of our ability, and we do, we do the effort, and we do the work, and we create the environment that's conducive, then we're likely to receive that gift. Hashem likes to give gifts. Hashem is good. He's kind. Hashem likes to give tzedakah. He does it every moment. The fact that He continuously creates us, that He still likes us, <laughs> no matter, despite everything that we do, He still loves us. 
and creates us and sustains us and continues to give us a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't throw in the towel. And he's not disappointed and he continues. And Hashem loves us. So he's just waiting for the opportunity. You know, it says more than the Talmud says, more than the calf wants to suckle, the, 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 uh, the mother wants to give. Hashem wants to give us. We just have to make an environment that's conducive. A little humility, a little legalessness, a little. We're the woman, we're the receiver, he's the giver, he's the man. But we have to seduce him, we have to create an environment. You can't, you can't be intimate with a woman if she's not interested and there's no response, and you're talking to a wall. There has to be, a, it's a two way street, there has to be some. So when she's open, she has the power to seduce the man. So we have the power to seduce Hashem. So Hashem is just waiting for an opening. We just have to create that opening, that egolessness, moving our ego on the side. And so if we do the work and we do the effort and we awaken and arouse within us this lower level of love, and also which includes a fear, includes awe of Hashem, being dis- afraid of being disconnected from Hashem, and we do the mitzvah with that love. We do the mitzvah with feeling and with fervor and with vitality and with energy and with joy and with excitement. Then we will evoke that response from within us. Can't guarantee it, but we have a good chance of evoking that response, that higher level, that love of pleasure, love of ecstasy. But even that is just a taste, just a reward. Which indicates how powerful the mitzvah itself is. That's the point. It's the mitzvah. It's the deed. It's the action. We should realize how precious the mitzvah is. What an opportunity Hashem gave us. What a gift Hashem gave us. Mitzvah, Jewish way of life. 613 mitzvah. All of them, every one of them. It's a gift. And that's how we should view the mitzvah. And therefore we should do the mitzvah enthusiastically and passionately and joyfully. Excited. We should be thrilled. That's the point that he's trying to make. That's the point that Rebbe is trying to explain. Unfortunately, many people read this letter and they completely miss the point. They don't get what's... Like, why is he having here a discussion about two types of love? What's the connection to what... What's the connection to everything that we learned till now? It's a very interesting discussion, but what's the connection? The whole point is about the divinity of the mitzvah, the essence of the mitzvah. And you see that from the reward. The second category is the love and desire in which the soul desires, loves and wishes to cleave to Hashem, to be bound up in the bond of life. So this means that you're distant. This love means I'm distant from Hashem. I feel the distance. And I yearn, and I miss Hashem. The love of pleasure is, is like a child with his, with his parent. When you're with your parent, you, there's no point in yearning. What are you yearning for? You have it, you're it, you're here. When you're being intimate, you're not yearning, you're, you're together. It's when you're distant. Your heart is yearning, your heart, when you're missing, when you're lacking, and you feel the lack, that's when your heart is on fire, your heart yearns. Proximity to Hashem is very dear to her. And that is what she desires. It is most grievous unto her to become, heaven forfend, distance from him, blessed be he. By having an iron partition of the chitznonim, the forces of klipen and holiness separate her from him, heaven forfend. 
love goes hand in hand, like we learned in chapter 19, in the first part of the Tanya, it goes hand in hand with the fear. Because when you love, truly love something, you're afraid of anything that will distance you, disconnect you. When you have a beautiful relationship, you're afraid to do anything that will harm the relationship. It goes hand in hand. If you really love something, then you hate anything that will, you're afraid of anything that can cause damage to something. Thus, inherent in the soul's love for Hashem is its anxious fear of being alienated from Him by a partition resulting from those things that are opposite His will. This love is latent in the heart of all Jews, even in the wicked, as explained at length in part one. So this love is not a love that you have to create. Because if it would be a love you have to create, it's not, it wouldn't be relevant or applicable to all Jews. Not everyone has the capacity, not everyone has the zitzvlesh, not everyone has the patience and the mental ability to develop a new love for something that's not in you. This love is in you, it's inside of you, you have it, you're born with it, it's inherent, it's innate. All you have to do is to reveal it. So, so the, the love is there, the yearning is there, the connection is there. As explained in chapter 18 and 19, every Jew has it. You're born with it. That's what makes us Jewish. We're born with a Jewish soul. And we have this natural, innate desire to cling and to connect. And we yearn. And that's why the soul is compared to a candle. The candle is constantly yearning to connect with its source. It's jumping up. It leaps up from the wick. You have to force it down because it wants to connect to the source of fire, the source of light. That's the nature. Nature is you want to go back to your source. Everything wants to go back to its source. So because our soul, the source of our soul is godly, is godliness, therefore we naturally yearn for godly things. We love godly things. We yearn for godly things. And when it's missing in our life, and we don't have it, there's a natural love. That's why we have this experience. That's why we have this renaissance, this uh, phenomenon of Jews who have been, due to no fault of their own, have been cut off from Jewish life for three generations. Grew up without a single positive and meaningful Jewish experience, and they have discovered Judaism with a vengeance. Because the soul is naturally godly, and when the soul has been cut off for something godly, you know, when you stop a Jew and they're putting on tefillin for the first time in their life, they burst out crying. Because this is the first godly thing they've done. Their soul is hungering. A person who hasn't eaten a day, a week, a month, you're starving to death. We don't know how much we're starving because we get so distracted, we get so caught up in the material world, we don't even realize. But when you stop and you actually do the mitzvah, you can't help it. Spontaneously, the soul just bursts out crying because it's the first divine and godly thing that a person has done in maybe decades. Maybe the first time in their life putting on film, the first time in their life lighting a Shabbat candle. So this is very powerful because the love is there. You don't have to create anything. It's not religion. Religion is created. Religion is acquired. Your Judaism is not created. It's not acquired. You're born with it. All you have to do is reveal it, allow it to emerge. So therefore, when it's lacking, there's a hunger. There's a need. And from this latent love derives their remorse, as in the phrase, the wicked are full of remorse. It says a Jew, even a Russia, is filled with regret. That's why Jews are guilt-ridden. Why does a Jew feel so guilty? The moment we sin, we already feel guilty. Unless a person is psychotic and they stop feeling any guilt. That's a rare, unique 
type of Russia. That's a Russia gummer, it's a complete Russia. But most Rishoyim, most wicked people, they don't feel good about it. They don't turn it into, a, into an ideology. Today we live in a world which has gone off the cliff. You know, as the, as the Russian politician addresses his comrades, he says, comrades, he says, yesterday we stood at the abyss. Today we took a giant leap forward. <laughs> but today society has taken a giant leap forward. There's one thing when a person was evil, but they felt bad about it, they were ashamed, they regretted it, they didn't feel good, they, they were weak. It was a weakness. They succumbed to weakness, but they never paraded it in public. They never marched in the street. They weren't proud of it. They weren't particularly proud of it. They didn't turn it into a whole ideology. Today, every evil becomes an ideology. Every distortion, every crookedness, every dysfunctionality, every coarseness, crassness becomes an alternative lifestyle. Everything today is a mitzvah. Not only is it good, not only is it not evil, not only don't I feel bad, it's a mitzvah. And how dear anyone feels bad about it. <laughs> now they turn it into a crime to feel bad about it. Anyone who's trying to change, they want to prosecute. How dear you can tell a person they should feel bad about a certain behavior. Don't feel bad. Everything is a mitzvah today. This is evil. This is twisted. This is, this is distorted. So, so this is a giant leap forward. We stood at the abyss and we just took a giant leap forward. But in a healthy, normal people, most healthy, normal, normal society, healthy society, wholesome society, a person is sin, but he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not going to delude himself, he's not going to convince himself just because he's sinning and he's weak and he doesn't have the moral courage, doesn't have the strength of character to change. I'm not going to turn into a mitzvah. I, I, I'm sorry, listen, I'm full of regrets, I'm not happy, I'm not proud. What can I do? So, so where does that come from? So from this, where, where does that come from? Why don't we feel whole with a sin? Why don't we feel proud when we do a sin? Why do we still feel something nagging at our heart? And that's really the crime. A whole generation is being brought up. That they don't even have the possibility of doing teshuva. They don't even have the possibility of coming home. When you have leaders, so-called leaders, pseudo-leaders, irresponsibly, these are the moral Bernie Madoffs. The only difference is that Bernie Madoff people lost their fortune, their money. Here people are losing their lives, are losing their spiritual life, losing their emotional life, losing their psychological life, losing their physical life because of these false, you know, trust me, and these false ideologies and philosophies. So they're not even giving them a chance to ever do teshuva, to change, to grow up, to mature, to become wise, to become genuine, wholesome, godly, divine. They're twisting and turning everything upside down. Good becomes evil, evil becomes good, right becomes left, left becomes right, down is up, up is down. You know, you, you can't even find your way back. When you're walking with your head on the floor and your feet up the air, the whole world is upside down. So you don't even have a possibility of straightening out because you don't, you don't even know, you don't even believe there's any straight, there's any right or wrong. Anything goes, whatever makes you happy. It's a very, very evil. It's not, it's insidious. It's, these are not your friends. This is Uncle Bernie times 10. And they're just selling you down the drain and ruining and destroying your life. 
in the process. The Torah is your friend. God is your friend. And God tells us like it is, straight, like mother's milk. You can trust every word the Torah is telling you. The Torah never lied to us. 3,800 years ago, God told us exactly that we'll still be here, the Jewish people will still be here, that has never changed. He told us exactly what's going to happen. Never buttered it up, never exaggerated. Every word, every letter is truthful. And he's speaking straight to us. This is good for you, and this is no good for you. This is healthy, this is not healthy. So when a, when a Jew does something wrong, you can never do it wholeheartedly. Some place inside of you, you don't feel right. It doesn't feel right. If you're honest with yourself, you're in touch with yourself, it doesn't feel right. I don't feel good. So unless society is totally flipped out and has become so distracted and loud that we lose touch with ourselves, completely lose touch with ourselves. You know, the biggest danger to life is when the body no longer can tell the difference between friend and foe. When a disease attacks the body, the body immediately labels it as a disease, and, and the body starts fighting it. The red blood cells, it starts fighting. When the immune system becomes so suppressed that the body no longer could differentiate between friend and foe, that's a devastating disease. And then, even the slightest thing can kill you. People who develop this disease where their immune systems are completely suppressed, AIDS, etc., what kills them is they can, they can have a flu, the smallest thing, because the body can no longer fight anything. It doesn't differentiate. It loses the ability to detect to friend and foe. When your immune system becomes completely suppressed, it, can, it doesn't have the power to fight anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't detect. When you're fighting... When you can at least label enemy, friend, friend or foe, then you have a chance. But when you lose the ability to detect friend and foe, and the friend becomes the foe, and your foe becomes your friend, and you think he's your friend because he tells you live as you please and do as you please, and I want the best for you, versus the friend who really cares about you and is telling you, you, you this is self-destructive, this is, this is, you're going off the cliff. You're harming yourself, you're destroying yourself on every level, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, eternally. That friend becomes the foe, your foe becomes the friend. The Arab terrorist, these are the same people, by the way. The Arab terrorist becomes the hero. Jews who are trying to defend their lives from, from 4,000 missiles aimed at men, women, and children, they become the foe. When society loses the ability to detect right from wrong, up from down, right from left, it's very scary. This is pure, absolute, undiluted evil. The good guy becomes the bad guy. The bad guys somehow become the good guys. The BDS movement, this is absolute, undiluted evil. There's not one point of truth of goodness in this movement. They're 100% evil. Because you lose the ability to differentiate between right and wrong, up and down. Good. 
So in that case, you don't you don't have any regret. You don't you don't you you, you lost your way. You don't even know what. It's like you're in Plato's cave and you're confused. You don't even know that there's a light. You don't even know. You have no frame of reference. You lose the frame of reference. You have no God. You have no Torah. You have no truth. You don't even know what to measure. And who becomes the ultimate arbiter? Whatever's politically correct, or whatever, whatever the zeitgeist is for the moment, the flavor of the moment. And even many rabbis who should know better, who represent Torah, suddenly become uncomfortable with the Torah and try to distort the Torah to fit in with the flavor of the day, whether it's anti-Israel or anti-family or anti-etc. Because they're lost. when a Jew has some connection to his neshama, to his soul, you may be weak, you may succumb to temptation, but at least you feel guilty. (laughs) At least you regret. At least you know what's right. Just because I'm a sinner, just because I'm acting inappropriately and immorally, and because I don't have the courage to act correctly, and I would love to act correctly, I, I ought to act correctly, and I hope I, one day I will act correctly, but listen, temptation wins the day. But I'm not going to distort my mind. And that's why the Sephardi Jews, the Sephardic Jews, in a way, are much more intellectually honest than the Ashkenazic Jews. Sephardic Jews, there's no distortion, there's no confusion, there's no reform, there's no orthodox, there's no conservative. They, they don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen a reformed Torah, I've never seen a conservative Torah. There's one Torah, there's one Jew, there's one God. I live up to it, I don't live up to it. If I don't live up to it, at least I have the honesty, the intellectual honesty. If I lose the game, I'm not going to change the rules of the game because it's lost and I, I don't like losing, so I'm going to tr- change the rules of the game and suddenly now it turns out I won. It's intellectually corrupt. It's intellectually dishonest. You're not living up to the Torah, so fine. Don't twist and change the Torah. Torah is eternal. Torah is genuine. It's divine. It's godly. I live up to it. I don't live up to it. But there's an honesty. There's an intellectual honesty. Amongst Ashkenazic Jews, it was a complete intellectual corruption. A distortion. You can't live up to the Torah. You don't want to live up to the Torah. Don't change the Torah. Admit, acknowledge. It's human nature. But there's a certain honesty. When you feel guilty, there's a certain honesty. Listen, I'm not living up to it. I'm not going to change the rules. This was in 1986. So my friend and I, we ran the first yeshiva in prison. In Eglin, Eglin Prison, near Eglin Air Force Base. The first yeshiva in prison. These were... It's a minimum security prison for very high-valued you know, financial c- crimes. And that's one thing they have in prison is they have time. They were all running huge companies. When, while they were busy, you, couldn't, you could never even access them. They had three secretaries just to get to them. Here they're sitting in prison and they have all the time in the world. So the Aleph Institute led and founded Rabbi Lipsker, Shonda Lipsker, created this tremendous organization to help Jewish families and prisoners in this very trying time. So he organized a yeshiva in prison. We were the first ones. A week, a week time, we had a full program of learning in the prison. It was an amazing, amazing program. Without mentioning names, we spoke to, we spoke to the inmates. 
And we asked them, tell us, why are you here? Everyone gave us an excuse in the story. I don't belong here. The government's fault. There was one executive of a very huge company. He was the only one who was mature about it. He said, listen, I'm here because I did something wrong. That's it. <laughs> you know. And I have to pay for my crimes. He was very, very mature about the whole... But human nature is, you don't want to face yourself. You don't want to face your weaknesses. You don't want to face your shortcomings. So, so, you, so you become a little dishonest. You, know, you twist the facts. You create blinders. But it takes a certain maturity to be able to man up, to own up. Listen, this is what I did. This is my shortcomings. These are my flaws. I'm not going to cover up. I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to turn into a mitzvah. I'm not going to turn into a whole campaign and a whole ideology. You have a human distortion. You have a human weakness. You have a twisted, twisted behavior. Fine. You know, don't, be ashamed of it. You don't have to be proud of it. You don't have to parade in the streets about it. So, this, so regret is actually a very healthy thing. Animals don't blush. This is a gift that God gave us, that a human being can blush. We can be ashamed of ourselves. We can be embarrassed of ourselves. That's why in the temple, the, the sign that Hashem had forgiven the sin was they t- took a red string around, around uh, the neck of the, uh, the goat, the twin of the goat that was thrown off. And when Hashem forgave the sin, the red string would turn white. Why red? Because red represents shame, embarrassment. To be able to be forgiven, first you have to be embarrassed. You have to feel shame. The human capacity to shame is a wonderful thing. I know it's the enemy of psychology 101. Today everyone is taught, don't be ashamed of anything. You have to be proud of everything. Every twisted, every distortion, every coarse, crass, superficial, junk food, junk lifestyle type of life. Everyone has to be proud. This is, this is, besides it's so foolish and childish and ridiculous and absurd and immoral and wrong. And a, a person's ability to be ashamed, to be embarrassed and to feel guilty, to feel uncomfortable with himself is a wonderful thing. You can't have any spiritual growth unless a person feels uncomfortable. You know he's not comfortable, you know he's comfortable with himself. A baby. A baby can roll and, <laughs> and they, they're comfortable. They don't feel uncomfortable. It's a sign that the child is no longer a baby that when the child is dirty, the child feels uncomfortable. He has to clean himself up. If a person is rolling in dirt and mud and he feels comfortable, it's not progress. People think this is progress. We're enlightened. We've progressed. Anything goes. Anything goes. This is not progress. This is regress. You, go, you went backwards thousands of years. You're rolling in, in, and you're proud? You don't feel uncomfortable? You don't feel a little dirty, a little uncomfortable? If a person doesn't feel uncomfortable, it's a sign of you've regressed. You've gone back to babyhood. It's not maturity. It's not growth. The more mature a person is, the more uncomfortable you feel. So guilt is actually a healthy sign. It comes from the love. It comes from the core and the essence we're godly. Because at the core and the essence we're godly, 
if we do something ungodly, if we behavior that's ungodly, or we think in a way that's ungodly, or we speak in an ungodly way, we slander, we tell lies, we curse, it makes us feel uncomfortable. And if it doesn't make us feel uncomfortable, that's scary. That's really scary. Either the person is completely psychotic, or the person is completely, absolutely evil, it's a scary phenomenon. Or the person has totally regressed and gone back to babyhood completely mindless. Where life is just one mindless party. Maybe it's no coincidence that now maybe it goes hand in hand. Society legalizes drugs. You, want to, you get everyone mindless. You get everyone on high and then you, you completely corrupt the family, destroy the family, destroy any sense of morality. Anything goes. <coughs> And people have zero sense of right and wrong. And what's the great crusade of the movement of the day? BDS, the Jews. It's it's mind-boggling. The corruption, the evil, the distortion, the, the... So feeling guilty is a good thing. And when we don't, when we stop feeling guilty, the psychology 101 will push people not to feel guilty. No shame. Be proud. This is, this is Bernie Madoff times 10. Then these are not your friends. It's enough to give you, give you the chills. They hate you with a passion. They're leading you to ruin and destruction and destroying you and destroying the country and destroying families and destroying everything that's sacred and good and decent and that has survived for thousands of years. There's a reason why it has survived for thousands of years. It's like a passing phase. It's a bubble. Pure chutzpah, pure arrogance. There's no substance to it. And it will fade. But if someone hates you and he tells you he hates you, it's easy to deal with. This hatred is very deceptive because it puts on a kind face. I love you. I love you and I love everything that you do and anything that you do goes and it's all good and be proud of it. This is worst evil a a hatred that parades itself as love God loves you and the Torah loves you and God looks you in the eye and knows you better than than we know ourselves and says deep down you don't want to do this this is no good for you you don't want to do this I'm not imposing Hashem is not imposing anything on us on the contrary Hashem is revealing our core and our essence, our godly nature, our hidden love. And we don't act accordingly, that's why we feel guilty, and we feel ashamed, and we feel embarrassed. And that's healthy. It's very, very healthy. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.